And Lord, as Mary Lee mentioned, and it's always the case, we are foreigners and sojourners in this dark and lost world in this generation. And seems like it's increasing in terms of its evil and downward direction. And we desire to always have wisdom and how to how to respond in certain situations, in all situations, that we may be lights in the dark world and that we may take advantage of all the opportunities you've given us to to share your word and your gospel with those that don't know you. And as we look into your word today, may this help us to help us to prepare for what you have for us day by day and that it would be the foundation that we can draw on to be able to carry on a ministry. So we just commit our time to you asking that you would have your way today amongst us and we just praise you for this opportunity that you've given us to to share with one another even distantly thousands of miles as opposed to distantly even in Albuquerque. So we praise you for that. And if there's anything that would distract us, that you would uh, control those things and allow us to focus on what you want us to focus on today. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Great. Well, as was prayed, we uh, are to be lights in a dark world, and that's certainly what Paul endeavor to do. In fact, he teaches us lots of principles in terms of being lights and what he's attempting to do in the book of Romans and the portion that we're looking at is deal with a situation that involved his fellow countrymen, the Jewish people. And my hope is as we've been looking at the details of these chapters, that it's at least emphasized the need to keep things in context to fully understand or to better understand. We've looked at a very familiar passage in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Many of you have it memorized, and many of you have used it, probably in sharing with the unbeliever, and hopefully in its context, we've brought out more of the greater and broader significance of that passage. We're going to look at another passage that's very familiar, beginning in verse 14. And as is often the case with these very well-known passages, oftentimes the context is not developed. So it'll be helpful in enhancing our understanding. And probably the main application right off the bat is, as we've prayed, that we know how to respond to different situations and particularly to the unbeliever and uh, the concept that uh, we are God's instruments. We are the means by which God desires to bring people into a relationship with himself. Not because he needs us, but because he desires to give us the opportunity to share in the work that he is accomplishing in uh, the world we live in. So we are privileged to be able to anytime have contact with an unbeliever and share the gospel. And that's kind of the focus of the beginning of this passage that we'll look at today. So in uh, the passage, just again, the context historically, Paul writing to Jews and Gentiles in the first century that lived in the city of Rome, 
And I've been stressing, he's writing to believers, not unbelievers. He deals with the unbeliever, the early parts of Romans, but the audience, they are believers. And when he talks about the unbeliever, he wants us to be equipped and understand what we are dealing with. So also, when uh, we have contact with unbelieving Jewish people, the passages we're looking at will give us insight and help in terms of relating to them. So when it talks about calling and belief and preaching, the context is in the context of in relationship with an unbelieving Jewish person. So we'll develop that further as we get further in. Just a quick reminder of the more immediate context. Paul is vindicating the righteousness of God, explaining why Israel is set aside. He goes all the way to the beginning of Israel with Abraham and the family of Abraham. Israel is a chosen people. Unfortunately, the nation, or in general, this was distorted in their thinking. They thought they were very, very special, and everybody else was not. And that was true, although they uh, separated themselves, and they should have, but not to the extent that God intended. He intended to make them a separate people in order that they would be lights in a dark world. And they failed miserably in two ways. They failed in their understanding of God's word and ultimately in terms of the relationship with God. They also failed in terms of Messiah, when Messiah came. So in the first century, what Paul is developing is the idea that they are set aside. They're under discipline and they are rejected. That's the passage that we're looking at right now. So he's building on this idea that Israel is under discipline. And this vindicates God's righteousness in that God is perfectly righteous to set aside whoever based on their responsibility in terms of responsiveness. That's the focus of this area that we're looking at. But it's not a total rejection. In fact, very glorious future that the nation of Israel has. They have a restoration in store. And we even went to Deuteronomy chapter 30 that Moses is preparing the children of Israel even before they're a nation. And Paul quotes out of that passage. And even before they're a nation, God, through Moses, is preparing the nation of Israel in terms of an ultimate salvation. And that is pictured for us in Romans chapter 11. So that gives us the context. So Israel is God's chosen people. Jewish people need to be reminded that this is still true, although as God's chosen, they have failed to fulfill what God intended for them. And as a result, he has set them aside. And even though the gospel is going out to Gentiles in the age that we live after the first century, Paul is writing in the first century to address this issue. This has to be explained and why the gospel has been extended. Now, this is God's intention all along. And Paul quotes from the Old Testament to show a Jewish audience that this should not be surprising. In fact, this was his intent all along and partly what he intended for the nation of Israel. 
But the gospel is going to go out to the Gentiles in a major way during a different era. We call that the church age. And Israel is set aside. And in chapter 10, we have some of the, t- the major reasons, two that we can lump together, two in terms of the relationship of Israel. In other words, their responsibility. They had perverted the way of righteousness and the way of attaining righteousness. So that's been the focus. We're going to look at the next reason from our outline in a moment here. The next reason that I'll get to is God is vindicated in that Israel throughout its history has been persistent in its disbelief. And we'll begin that major portion of chapter 10 when I get to verse 14 here in a minute. Quick reminder, we've been stressing human responsibility. That's what the H stands for on the slide there, human responsibility. In contrast to the first part of chapter 9, which emphasized God's sovereign election, so we developed principles relating to it. In terms of human responsibility, Israel failed in their pursuit of righteousness. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Secondly, they failed to know God himself. Paul focuses on the perfection of the righteousness of God in, uh, what was that, verse 4, or 3, rather. They failed to know the perfections of God or the nature of God, the essence of God, the righteousness of God. Thirdly, they failed to realize the purpose of the law. The law was not intended to give life. It was intended to guide in the pursuit of life, but the law could not give life. Life came from God himself, and ultimately the end of the law is the Messiah or Jesus Christ. That's verse 4. And they also failed, fourthly, to apply the priority of faith. It was a self-righteousness that they were pursuing rather than a trust in the provider of faith, so failed to apply the priority of faith, verses 6 through 10, and we've been looking at it at the last few weeks. And along those lines, fifthly, we saw last time, they failed to see the plentitude of God's plan. You might say, why do I choose that word? Well, you might notice I like to alliterate oftentimes. So failure to P, pursue righteousness, failure to know the P, perfections of God, fail to realize the purpose of the law, fail to apply the P, priority of faith. So I choose fail to accept the plentitude of God's plan. And by plentitude, it includes a broader scope in terms of people that God has chosen and God has brought to himself. It even includes, if you're a Jew, even the Gentiles. So they fail to accept that concept, the plentitude of God's plan. And we're going to develop a sixth failure when we get into verse 14 that we'll deal with later on. So we looked at verses 12 through 14 last time, just a quick review, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So he's bringing out the idea, God has broken down all of the walls of barriers between Jew and Gentile in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. This is developed in other places. 
and it's developed here in Romans chapter 10. So there's no distinction, and there were lots of distinctions in the Old Testament. So this is revolutionary. This is uh, hard to accept if you're Jewish. And Paul is bold enough to state it very clearly. And we looked at this passage like last time. For the same Lord, the same Yahweh, the same Lord that brought the children of Israel out of Egypt is not only Lord of Israel, but also is Lord of all, which that was another concept that Israel stumbled over. And the goodness, the greatness, the riches of God is available to a broader uh, audience, you might say, or a broader spectrum. That's the plentitude of God. And that riches is abounding for all who call on him, all who respond and call upon him. Now, Paul is alluding to what he's already said in some of the quotations. And then in verse 13, he quotes again a passage he had already quoted earlier to support this idea that this is not something simply New Testament. This is not Pauline doctrine. This is not New Testament concepts. So he quotes out of the Old Testament, whoever, we stressed that last time, will call on the name or the composite of who God is, whoever will call on God himself, the, the God of the Bible, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's where we ended last time. I'd like to pick up and kind of expand upon this idea of calling on the name of the Lord, because the next passage carries it to the next step, you might say, or he develops this idea of calling on the name of the Lord in verse 14. And um, I don't, it's not the next slide, but we'll get to it in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And he's going to kind of give us a chain of the way that God is working in terms of of transferring the idea that God is calling people to himself. There's a chain of actions that involves you and I. Uh, that's the stress of chapter 10, the human aspect, the human responsibility aspect. We saw God in eternity past chooses and works in terms of orchestrating events, predestination, all of those concepts that we looked at. But he, as part of his means, has chosen to use human instruments. And he intended in the Old Testament to use the nation of Israel. And because of their failure, chapter 10 is explaining that God has set them aside. But it still stands. The Old Testament truth is even more so today in terms of Gentiles. So whoever, whether they be Samaritans or Gentiles or whoever, We'll call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. So Ray, let's, let's look at Ray, this concept. Go ahead, Mary Lee. Uh, what is the reference for 1013? What is the Old Testament reference? That's the Joel passage, Joel okay. 2, 32. We looked at that last time. We'll look at it again because it comes into play in what we're talking about here. In fact, on this next slide, I'm going to ask some of you to to look up some of these passages. Let me show some of them on here. And if somebody would look up Psalm 105, someone else Psalm 116, 
and someone else, Psalm 99.6. This concept of calling on the name of the Lord is a frequent Old Testament concept. And I think some of these passages bring out some of the fullness of what's involved in uh, the Joel passage that uh, Paul uh, quotes in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 13 here. Anyone have uh, Psalm 105 and verse 1? Don't be shy. Psalm 105.1, do you have it, David? You got your mic open? Yes. Who's got Psalm? Well, I got it. Who's got Psalm 116? Somebody have it, so we'll be clicking when we... Uh, read. I have 116. Okay, okay. 99. Anyone want to look that one up? Okay, go ahead, David. Uh, read Psalm 105, verse 1. Psalm 105, 1. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. And if you keep reading, the psalm is a great worship psalm. It's a great worshipful psalm. And there's several others as well. Calling on the name of the Lord in worship, just adoration and uh, and recognizing who he is, and that verse one, recognizing what he has done, and praise for for God Himself and and His greatness and His goodness and all of the perfections. So the calling on the name of the Lord. This is something that is ongoing. It's not just a one time thing. It's not just in evangelism. It and in fact, calling on the name of the Lord in most of the passages is something that uh, the believer does, not the unbeliever. The unbeliever has to believe and come into a relationship and then, in general, call on the name of the Lord. Now, I think it's possible to call on the name of the Lord in order to receive God's righteousness and God's salvation, but most of the passages, particularly in the Old Testament, and I think even in the Romans 10 passage, refer to calling on the name of the Lord as a believer. And here's a, a set of areas that we can call on the name of the Lord in worship. So calling on him has the idea of looking to him, even in the area of worship, calling on him in terms of responding to him by a worshipful attitude and in worship. Mary Lee, you got 116. Somebody got one uh, or 99. Who's got it? Yes. Okay. I have one. Connie's got 99. Go ahead. Uh, All right. This says, um, I, starting at uh, verse 3, uh, 1163, I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Okay. Clearly, that's a believer in some trouble. We won't develop the context. You can read the psalm and uh, figure out a little bit of the context. But basically, there's a lot of other passages also in the midst of trouble and suffering and even discomfort. That's a, a, a special occasion to call upon the name of the Lord, to call upon him. He is our resource and in these times when uh, even our life is in danger, he is the one that can deliver us. And remember what we've been talking about in Romans chapter 10, what he's talking about here. I think he's alluding to the coming judgment in the first century. 
Now, I don't think Paul knew a specific date, but I think knowing scripture, he knew that Israel, part of the reason he's writing this portion of Romans, not only is Israel under discipline, but that discipline is going to involve wrath. So it's deliverance from wrath, I think, in Romans chapter 10. Connie, you got uh, Psalm 99, verse 6. Yep. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. Can you see kind of the general in any circumstance, in any area of life, the believer, this should be a pattern, this should be a lifestyle. In other words, this is kind of another way of just conveying, you know, I need to trust God moment by moment, day by day in every circumstance. And I think this is one of the contexts that kind of brings out that idea. So calling on the name of the Lord, we we should habitually have a lifestyle of dependence and calling upon him, I think carries this idea of, Lord, I'm utterly dependent upon you for for every circumstance, every, how do I respond to this situation? How do I respond to that situation? And here we have some of the heroes of faith mentioned in verse 6 there of Psalm 99. And I think is, that verse also references our role as priests. Right. Mm, that's good. Yeah, excellent. In terms of calling on the name of the Lord, so in evangelism or as mediators between a lost world and God himself, we call on the name of the Lord. So this is a certainly an Old Testament concept, but it's a New Testament concept. It, the New Testament speaks of trusting in the Spirit or walking in the Spirit. I think these are uh, synonymous concepts. Walking in the Spirit is like calling on the name of the Lord. It's it's dependence, and it's the idea of trusting in Him. And the Psalm 99.6 is kind of that general idea of whatever, in not just in life-threatening situations yeah. where we need deliverance, but the whole spectrum. And I would say beginning with uh, with worship, beginning with... Uh, just dependent on him in worship and acknowledging that as we acknowledge the uh, uh, omnipotence and the omniscience and all of the uh, aspects of who God is. Okay, were you going to say, there you go. When we get to the Joel passage, I think Joel, and this is the one that he's quoting out of, he quotes verse 32, but would somebody go back and uh, look up uh, verse 31 and someone else, I think Jesus, he doesn't use the phrase calling on the name of the Lord, but I think he's referring to the same time frame that Joel is referring to in terms of the nation of Israel. Remember, Joel is a prophet that writes to Israel, and uh, he's looking down the road. If you look at the context, the day of the Lord is a theme of Joel. He's looking beyond 70 AD even. And I think Paul is conscious that Joel is far-reaching. Joel is speaking of a, a future wrath. And I think from the details and the description of not only Joel 2, but other parts of the book of Joel, uh, much of what Joel is talking about will not be fulfilled until the period called the tribulation, 
which is a period beyond the church age or after the church age. And from the perspective of the first century, I think Paul anticipated that that might be right around the corner, that that might be a soon experience of the nation of Israel. And I think that's part of the reason he's quoting it in this context is uh, to let the children of Israel that are listening, that are believers, to be able to understand what God is doing in the first century. Anyone got Joel 2, 31? Read 31. And then basically it's got the quotation that that Paul has. Go ahead, uh, David. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. That's the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, if you read Matthew chapter 24, that uh, Jesus is basically alluding to what Joel is saying there. Now read uh, the next one. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Is he talking about, and uh, like your translation, some of them uh, translate shall be saved. Remember last time we talked a lot about salvation, and in most of the context, when it talks about salvation, it has more of the idea of deliverance, as uh, David's translation translates there. And it's in the context of the great tribulation and the wrath that is going to be poured out, and the deliverance is a physical deliverance from that wrath. And it may include martyrdom, but deliverance, tribulation, wrath. That's the context of the Joel 2 passage that Paul quotes here. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be delivered or will be saved, is the New American Standard translation in uh, the Romans passage. Jesus, notice what he says in Matthew chapter 23. And the context, this introduces what we describe as the Olivet Discourse. Mary Lee referred to that. I've got a whole series on the Olivet Discourse that includes this passage, if any of you new people would be interested in seeing it on the the website. But Matthew 24 and 25 is the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is basically predicting the future events. Now, it's not clear from uh, the Olivet Discourse that there will be a church age in between. And I think Paul is aware of the Olivet Discourse, and he's writing from the perspective of the first century, not knowing that the church age would endure for 2,000 years. Now, we get used to the idea of the church, and we don't think in terms of what it would be like to live in the first century. But just imagine if the church age is abbreviated and very short, and Jesus is laying out the history here of the future, basically, that uh, deals with Joel and a time of tribulation. And if you read Matthew 24, particularly, preceding the second coming of Christ is this period of tribulation. But notice how Jesus introduces that. Who's got Matthew 23, 37, and 39? Jeff's got, oh, Jeff went away. Go ahead, Jeff. You got it? Um, it's Denise. Oh, Denise. Couldn't tell. <laughs> That's okay. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, 
How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Now let me give you let me give you a, let me give you a little bit more of the context. This is scholars believe that this was given the Olivet Discourse on Wednesday before the crucifixion. And those that hold to a Wednesday time frame for the Olivet Discourse see a Friday crucifixion. There's a debate over the exact time there, but a Friday crucifixion. So this is just a, a few couple of days here. Jesus knowing, in fact, he's preparing the disciples for the coming crucifixion. And this prophetic portion of scripture is to lay out why Israel is set aside and the kingdom, even though he is the king, the kingdom is delayed. This is the context. So verse 37, Jesus had desired to bring Israel. He's like a mother hen desiring to bring the chicks into his bosom, into a relationship, into fellowship. But what happened? Go ahead and read. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, you're not going to see me anymore. This is Jesus sitting on a portion of the mount. Mount of Olives, telling the disciples they will not. And in a broad sense, he's speaking to Israel. And he's essentially saying that um, until you call on the name of the Lord, as Joel described in Joel 2, in that sense, he is not returning. And it looks to the period of time that Paul is going to expand upon in chapter 11 when Israel does, in fact, call on the name of the Lord. Does that give you some... Ray, I just had a thought. Go ahead. Um, that um, Jesus's kingship kind of reflects David's because David was chosen as king long before he ever actually reigned. And Jesus's kingdom has not come yet. So he was chosen as king. He is king, but he's not totally reigning. He hasn't come into his kingdom yet. Exactly. In fact, David was anointed king. Exactly. So also Jesus, you might say, was baptized by John the Baptist. You could consider that something like a, an anointing. Uh, exactly. So we do have a long period of time, not specifically known in the first century church, but Jesus is saying concerning Israel, he's not going to return until Israel goes through a period of tribulation. That's what he describes in the Olivet Discourse. And until then, this is this concept of Israel being set aside. Their house is left desolate. That's, those are the words of Jesus in uh, Matthew 23. Hey, Ray. Go ahead. This reminds me of the Zechariah 12 passage, and 12, 9, and 10. Mm -hmm. It shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Yep, and they will mourn. The fact that they missed him in the first century. 
Exactly. But at that point, they will recognize that then Jesus. I think that's when that's when their eyes are opened. Exactly. They will realize that Jesus Christ was, in fact, Yahweh, was, in fact, Messiah. What is what was that reference again? I'm sorry, I missed it. Ze- Zechariah 12, 9 and 10. Thank you. Okay. So that brings us to the passage we'll focus in on today. Just this quick overview that we've been looking at. We looked at the past sovereign election of Israel, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 to verse 29. And we're presently in the present national rejection of Israel, 930 to the end of the chapter. And I mentioned there are at least two major things that Paul is bringing out in terms of Israel's failure. They failed in their attaining of God's righteousness. They perverted the way of righteousness. That goes to 1013. And now beginning in verse 14, which we'll look at and move into, another reason that they are set aside is because they have persistently throughout their history, been a disbelieving nation. In fact, what? how does he conclude? Verse 21, this is where he's heading. He's going to develop it, but it's good to read it right off the bat. He says, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. That's a summary of their history. And it's because of their persistent disbelief and their obstinacy, is that a word? They are set aside. And that moves into chapter 11 that we'll get to, oh, I don't know, a couple of weeks from now. So persistent disbelief. And uh, what he's going to do in the next passage, beginning in verse 14 and 15, he's going to give us the potential of preaching And what he's doing here is he's giving us, in terms of Israel, he's showing that Israel is basically without excuse, much like what he said in chapter 1, all of humanity is without excuse because God has revealed himself. So also Israel is without excuse because they have been presented the, the message and they have disbelieved it. That's kind of the bottom line. So he's going to lay the this chain out in terms of the means by which God works, the means by which he's worked in terms of Israel, and he's alluding to what happened in the first century, but you might even see how God has worked throughout the history of Israel. And we can look at it from our perspective and bring out some applications. And I think in, in general... This is what most Bible teachers focus on, are the applications that we can draw. And unfortunately, sometimes they leave out the uh, the Jewish context here. So he's going to give us a series of questions on preaching, all of verse 14 and the first part of verse 15. And the first one we have in 14, how then... Will they call on him? That goes back to verse 13 and the Joel passage that we introduced there. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? In other words, they have to have have some background in order to believe. In fact, they can't even call on him. They can't worship him. They can't 
call on him for deliverance. They can't call on him in everyday situations because they have not even if they have not even believed. So belief has to precede justification by faith and faith alone must precede calling on the name of the Lord. Make see the distinction that he makes there. So right. maybe go ahead, Jim. Well, um, yeah, uh, I just want to comment that. Uh, how much I appreciate how you're bringing this all out because I think, uh, first of all, it, it really, I think, contributes to our hope uh, when we see here clearly the way you've developed this, how God has it has and is and will work with Israel in spite of their, their fallen nature uh, and their disobedience is described in uh, verse 21. Uh, but uh, and uh, it, uh, the reason it gives me hope personally is because uh, it it also tells me how I have to live today. Yes, uh, it gives it, it it gives me hope in spite of myself. If you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely! I know what you mean. So, and I think we can all echo what you mean uh, in our own experiences. Absolutely. So, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? We have this chain that I'll kind of bring out. And actually, he lays it out kind of in reverse order, you might say, in terms of chronology. He introduces the idea of calling on the name of the Lord, but what precedes that is a need for justification, I think, or believing In other words, you can't respond to the Lord until you have that initial relationship with him. So the next thing that we need, or the first, the thing that we need preceding that is belief. And then in the chain, he goes on, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? So they have to hear the message in order to put their faith in what God has revealed and we could stress the importance of the the message, the, the gospel message that needs to be proclaimed. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? So the concept of hearing precedes belief. You can't call on the name of the Lord unless you first believe, and you can't believe unless you first hear a message to put your faith in, which also tells us that biblical faith is not this nebulous, unspecified, unclear faith. In other words, I just believe, I believe in belief, or I believe in faith. Belief has to be in something. Biblical faith has an object. Biblical faith is based on content, based on a message. So belief, you have to hear that message. So that's the link in the chain. And then we have the the next link. And how will they hear without a preacher? There's uh, the need for a proclamation of the message. So there's a need for preaching. And I think the word that is used here, oftentimes we we hear it used in a context uh, from the pulpit. That seems to be the stress. But I think it's very it's a very general word, and it I think it applies to every believer. Every one of you is a preacher. Sorry to say it, but preaching, in other words, it's just a proclamation. In fact, I'm going to use the Great Commission here because I think this is the the task 
that God has tasked every believer in terms of proclaiming a gospel message to, in our case, a lost world, the preaching of the message of salvation. And then verse 15 goes to the next stage. How will they preach unless they are sent? Now, I think sadly, and I think there is an element of uh, the need for authorized sending or commissioning, but uh, sometimes what is stressed in this is uh, ordination or position in a church and those sort of things. But in reality, biblically, I believe, in fact, that's what I'd like to get into next here, I think all of us are ambassadors. All of us are evangelists. All of us have been sent, you might say. How will they preach unless they are sent? And in this context, I think what Paul is doing, he's awakening his audience to the idea of what has already taken place in the first century. And in some ways, he's defending his ministry. He had been outcast amongst some of the Jews. And eventually, after the writing of Romans, the Jews are going to send are going to put him on trial, basically, rejecting his ministry. And I think in a subtle way, what he's saying, he has been sent. He as an apostle has been sent. The gospel message has been preached. And we have a record of that preaching in the book of Acts. In fact, the, the word, the Greek word, keruzo, is the idea of to announce. It's like what a newspaper does. It gives announcements concerning what has happened and what is needed in terms of data or to herald a message to announce. So in that sense, uh, we are all called to the task of announcing what God has done, and it's good, good news. So sent ones from the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, they are sent ones. They are sent with a message. They are the bearers of God's word. They are the ones that God has sent. And in the later history of Israel, they're the ones that have been sent to call Israel back into relationship with God, to call them out from idolatry. Jesus himself, somebody look up John 5. And while you're looking that one up, let me put some other ones on here. Somebody look up the Galatians passage as well, Galatians 1. Jesus himself, in fact, a common theme in the Gospel of John is this idea that Jesus has been sent and very, very clearly, now he is very unique in his sending, but he, he came with a message. In other words, he came with a message of the kingdom. He is the king and he is offering the nation of Israel the kingdom. And he himself announces that at the beginning of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. Who's got John 5, 36 through 38? Who wants to read that one? Barb in Texas or Steve? Oh, I was going to read Galatians. Go ahead, somebody else. Okay. <laughs> Who's got John? Somebody got John there? I do I have it, Ray. Okay. Who was that? Mary Lee? Mary. Go ahead, Mary Lee. Okay. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Now, that's Jesus the, speaking. Yes. 
for the words that the Father has given me to, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. There you go. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have ever seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. There you go. The word and the concept of Jesus being sent from the Father in a very special sense to perform particular works, but also to um, basically reveal certain content concerning the Father. Uh, since you're there, can you skip uh, to chapter 8, Mary Lee, and then uh, yes. we'll move forward. 16. Actually, I have 8 if you want me to Yeah, read go ahead, Connie. Go ahead. Okay, eight, 16 to 18 says, and it is Jesus speaking. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Okay, and if you read through chapter 8, you're going to see the recurring theme of Jesus referring to his sending. Now, the special sending is he is sent as the Messiah, the one that would not only die, but also the one that would offer the kingdom. Yeah, you can see that theme throughout the Gospel of John uh, very commonly. So Jesus is a sent one. The very meaning of apostles means sent one, sent ones with a mission. They are sent to essentially establish the church and also to proclaim the message that Jesus left them to, to proclaim. Paul, in the first verse, identifies him as one that is sent. He, he is sent with a purpose. And let's see, who had, uh, Steve's got Galatians 1, Steve in Texas, verse 15 and 16, uh, Paul. But even when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Okay. Paul, from the womb, is a sent one. Before he was born, God had called him and eventually, in time, converted and then given a message to proclaim. So Paul is a sent one. And you could support the idea. We don't need to look these up, but in John 17, 18, referring to those that would believe in him. This is his prayer, and he prays. And in verse 18, he talks about the sending of believers. So we are sent ones from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's praying for protection and empowering of the believer there. And the the, the idea, I think, is contained in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That's the Great Commission Every believer is commissioned to proclaim the gospel message. So every one of us, every one of you are sent ones, and you're sent with a message, and that message is one that uh, is to be proclaimed. So we have been sent to preach a gospel message so that people can hear the content 
And upon hearing, they have the opportunity to believe and be converted and to uh, begin a, a lifestyle of calling on the name of the Lord in whatever circumstance they may find themselves. And then in verse 15b, the latter part, he's going to support this idea from uh, the Old Testament. Remember, he's kind of uh, focusing on Jews and the Jewish idea. This is not Paul's gospel. This is not Paul's idea. This is something that he can see in the Old Testament. And he quotes another passage, obviously from the Old Testament, pertaining to the ones that are sent. And he says, how beautiful are the feet. Anyone have beautiful feet out there? Feet? This is an interesting image here that Paul uses, because in general, most of us don't think our feet are that beautiful. And when I think of the Apostle Paul, remember Paul walked thousands of miles on some of his missionary journeys. You could uh, trace the journeys and figure out the mileage. It would be in the thousands or at least a little bit over a thousand miles of walking. And what he's saying is those that bring the message, their feet are beautiful. This is probably what Paul's feet look like without the tattoo. So what is the emphasis of the passage here? I don't think it's so much on the feet, but it has the idea. I think it's it's not the feet that are in view, but the one that uh, is willing and uh, goes through the pain of walking thousands of miles in order to deliver a message. It's this message that is beautiful, and the one that carries it carries the with them the the beauty of the message and the uh, beauty of the feet. Ready? Yes. I was also wondering, uh, because, you know, people had to wash their feet to be, um, there was a washing of hands, but you would have your feet washed when you entered the house because your feet were dirty. Uh, and I can't remember if, you know, how Islam holds at the foot of one is you never point a foot at somebody because it's very rude. And I was just thinking that of the verse that talks about the seemly members and the unseemly Mm -hmm. and feet got a lot of abuse. So they probably were pretty ugly, pretty dirty, calloused uh, and all the rest. Yeah. And I think what Paul is doing is drawing attention and almost giving you a contrast. How are these feet beautiful? Well, they're beautiful in that they bring good news of those who bring good news. And I think that's the focus. He wants us to kind of be awakened of those who bring good news of good things. So we have basically the message that is the focus, the message that is to be preached. And uh, let's conclude with a couple of things here. The quote comes from Isaiah 52. And what you ought to do for next time to prepare for the rest of the passage, you might read Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 7, and we'll develop this context next time. It comes as a result. It's in the context of news that is coming from Babylon. Now, this is a prophecy. Isaiah is predicting that there will be news that comes out of Babylon that the exile and the captivity has ended. So he's prophesying the end of something that has not taken place yet. 
Now, elsewhere in Isaiah, he predicts that they will be taken captive. But 52 predicts the news that will come out of Babylon. That's good news. The exile and the captivity is over. Let's prepare for the coming of Messiah and uh, the coming of salvation for all. Verse 10. And I think in that context, Isaiah is talking about this broad perspective of the gospel going out to all, salvation for all. Now study that passage and uh, take it into the next chapter because Paul is also going to quote Isaiah 53 verse 1 in the context. So this news of uh, the end of the captivity is good news. That's going to introduce us to the Messiah. That's good news. And the return, from our perspective, the return of the Messiah. This is, a, this is amazing. This is excellent. This is incredible. This is great news. Awesome. Fantastic news. Unbelievable news. And then beginning in verse 16, we have the sad news. And this is probably a good place to stop and we'll pick up in verse 16 next time. That preaching, even though that preaching was there and the potential for great things was there, 14 and 15, the preaching is not believed. However, they did not all heed the good news. And now he's going to quote Isaiah 53. That's where we'll begin next time. Actually, we'll begin uh, with verse 15, the last part there. I'll remind you of what we talked about today. Any other comments on our passage today? Hi, Ray. Go ahead, Nate. Thanks for the teaching. Um, it, just to, to tie this passage back to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and how you were arguing that the, that those are presenting that the, that the confessing and the believing are separate things, that it's not an additional, that the believing results in justification and the confessing results in salvation, but that those are kind of separate um, and that the confession comes after the believing and that the justification is, is a, the salvation is distinct from the justification. Um, you know, this, this passage presents kind of the separate distinct steps that you can clear, see, see that they're clearly different, that the, the sending is not the same as the preaching and the preaching is not the same as the listening, the hearing and the hearing is not the same as the believing. And then the believing is, is separate from the calling. And so I think this really helps solidify kind of the, your, your point in 10, nine and 10 about those being distinct. Um, things and not synonymous. Yeah, and what you mean is Paul's point, right? Yeah, Paul's, <laughs> your, your point as presented from what Paul wrote is Paul's point. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, I think that's what he's doing here. And then the, the final distinction here is even if you hear, you still have to believe, and unfortunately you can fail at that point. Everything else has happened, and in the first century, everything happened up to the point of belief. And Israel, as Paul is saying in verse 16, they did not heed that good news. So, yeah. Any other comments? Very good. 
Um, yeah, uh, Ray, this is Jeff. One of the other observations I've made in this passage that it declares the absolutely essential nature of the believer in going out and spreading the gospel. Unbelievers simply cannot come to God unless they hear the gospel from another human being. Right. And that's the human responsibility aspect in terms of the means by which God brings people to himself. Yes, they are, I believe, chosen. I believe in eternity past. And yes, he's the one that does every aspect of salvation, but one of the means that he has chosen to work is through the believer. So I would say if we, if you are, if you are a believer, then you are a sent one. So keep your toenails trimmed. Who wants to close for us today? Why don't you do it, David? Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that you have clearly shown us that we need you and that we have no power in ourselves. And as you take away thing by thing by thing, I realize that how much and how desperately we need to depend on you every day in every way, and that you have made us light in a dark place and shown us and taught us that we are to be the ones to sow and not not think about what's going to happen after we sow, but just sow. You're the one who provides the water. You're the one who provides the growth. We don't have anything in ourselves that we can do and, and improve upon anything that you've given us. So we just thank you for that. Thank you for the realization of your word and your truth, your grace and your mercy. And we throw it all at your feet at the cross and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Like I said earlier, I don't see Janie, so she's probably not feeling well. She was going to give us a little introduction. Would anyone care to substitute? Maybe one of the longtime members of our group. Do we have membership? Who's keeping membership roles? Me, Linda. Oh, Linda. That's right. She's keeping the role. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I just, people have not been paying their dues. <laughs> <laughs> I'll speak, Ray. I've never been shy to speak. That's true. <laughs> you could introduce <laughs> you and Bill. Bill's a little yeah. bit shyer than you. Of course. Yes, he is. He had a very shy mother. And if he's, he's walking around. So if I can get him over here, then we'll both speak. So. Bill and Mary Lee Money. I think we met you, did we meet? Yeah, we met you, Ray, in 1973. I was five right. years old. That's right, and we were six. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we have known you for a fair time. And uh, we rented this house in 1973. And we rented a house from you in 1973, and we, 73, and we set you on the road. To, uh, to property management, slum, a career in property management. To slumlordship. That's right. That's right. That was a fun house. Lots of happy memories at that house. And so uh, Bill and Mary Lee, I'm from California. Bill's from Colorado. We uh, met at a, a summer, uh, at a um, national park. We were both working there and we married at the end of the summer. So we've been together for... 
55 years. 55, yeah, 55 years this wow. year. Wow, congratulations. And so, no, no, not to us. You congratulate God and you say, my golly, if God can do it for them, imagine what he might do for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, anyhow. We say it's a summer romance got out of control 55 years ago. <laughs> so, um, let's see, what do you want to know, Ray? Lily, your testimony. All right. Well, I came to know the Lord. I grew up in the church. My mother had a, a strong relationship with the Lord ever since she was a child. I think she was saved at a, a missionary revival in uh, the late 1920s or early 1930s. She was saved as a high school student. So she had a strong relationship with the Lord. My father had a more distant relationship with the Lord. Uh, and I saw my mother, the faith of my mom after my father died. And he he died very, very suddenly, very unexpectedly. And uh, when you were in college, I was in no, I was a freshman in high school. And uh, I'm the eldest, so I saw I saw my mom's reliance upon the Lord, and that began to set my feet on really following him for sure. So Bill and I were married in '65. Uh, we were both very young. We were both firstborns. We're both very stubborn. And the Lord has worked through our childish faiths. Uh, Bill's family was not a particularly strong family in the Lord. My mother was, but I had not yet formulated in my mind that I was going to allow the Lord to manage my life, to rule my life, to be sovereign over it. So the Lord has worked in us and through us and uh, through our children to form us into, for me, certainly, I'll talk about myself, to transform me into a woman who believes that his promises are true and uh, who believes that uh, following him is the best way to do it, the only way to do it. Actually, by now, I've tried a number of different ways. They all haven't worked very successfully. So hmm. <laughs> I, don't like, I don't like repeat failures. You know, that hurts when you keep pulling gravel out of your hands and knees and so on. That's the scientific method that you've tried. That's right. I can, I, can t I can attest to it. Bill and I can attest to it. So I'll let him tell his story. I grew up in a church-going home, Methodist church. Um, my father was Episcopalian, my mother Lutheran, and so they compromised on Methodist. Um, I must have heard the gospel uh, during that time uh, because I do remember going to sunrise service but I don't, I, uh, don't remember the gospel, and, and, but I knew the words. And so when we were married, Mary Lee thought I was a Christian. And if you'd asked me, I probably would have thought I was a Christian. But uh, then after we'd been married um, four or five years, seven years, um, we were, we'd been to a uh, uh, Easter service choir practice, Merrily always made sure we went to church, and uh, I asked, I wonder how much difference it really would have made if Jesus hadn't come. And it was the first time Merrily really understood that I didn't understand. Hmm. And uh, that summer, she uh, and Mike went backpacking in the High Sierras, and we had been to a Wycliffe Associates banquet a couple months prior, picked up Brother Andrew's book, God Smuggler. And so that week while Mary Lee was uh, backpacking in the Sierras with Mike, I read that. 
And I came to the point where Andrew committed his life to God. And all of a sudden, I knew that's exactly what I've been looking for. So I got down beside the bathtub and gave my life to Christ. And immediately had a, a huge hunger to know the Bible. Not knowing any better, I started at the beginning and read it through. And uh, major life change. Mary Lee could see it when, when she got back. And How I'm old convinced. were you? Oh, uh, let's see. Got married at 20, probably about 25, 26. It's after graduate school. 27, okay, maybe. Thank you. And um, I'm convinced that, that Mary Lee's mother prayed me into the kingdom, that that's how I came. That, that uh, she, I'm convinced, was praying for me uh, ever since she knew that Mary Lee and I were serious. And uh, like I said, I had a real hunger for, uh, for the Bible. Mary Lee's brother belonged to a Christian commune called the Lighthouse Ranch. Jim Durkin headed that, and Leon would send me tapes uh, of uh, Durkin's sermons, and I had to drive out to China Lake once a month for meetings, and uh, so a lot of my early education was from those tapes by Durkin. So I don't know how he counts on your, your scale, Ray, but you know God can use anything to instruct us. And then we came to Grace, and we started growing in the Word in Grace, and uh, I, re I will say, Ray, I have so appreciated your class on uh, um, the, the foundations, uh, on uh, the Olivet Discourse, and uh, this one. I have appreciated this very much as far as putting, putting our faith in context and getting, it, uh, getting those uh, anchor bolts well set. I, I have appreciated that very much over the years. And we had a major, our, our really, our first major moment of seeking God's direction uh, came in in uh, '73 because uh, the the Navy offered me the opportunity to come to Albuquerque and work with the Air Force at the Air Force Weapons Lab as uh, on loan from the Navy and. It's kind of equivalent to uh, turning a kid loose in a candy store. And so we, we spent a lot of time praying and seeking whether God would have us come or not. And, and uh, he did. He made it really clear that we were to come here. And he even told us before we left California that we were to go to Grace Church. Uh, made that clear through a friend. And so uh, it was really our first first time of seriously seeking what God would have us do and then following through on it. 